Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown show. A show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. Sydney Ballou has roots in Trinidad and Tobago, as well as Chicago. He's an amateur boxer and trainer, a ballroom historian, a writer, an advocate for racial, social, and gender justice. After graduating magna cum laude from the University of Pennsylvania with a BA in political science, he pursued public policy research as a German academic exchange scholar. After graduating magna cum laude from the University of Pennsylvania with a BA in political science, he pursued public policy research as a German academic exchange scholar and transatlantic fellow in Berlin before completing a dual degree master's in urban policy at the Paris Institute for Political Studies and the London School of Economics. Sidney is a proud member of the House of Extravaganza. He made history in 2019 as the first transgender man to win a voguing category, Old Way Performance, at the Latex Ball. He's currently working on a book on the history and evolution of New York City's ballroom scene. After writing an op-ed in the New York Times, he was tapped to be a writer and producer on the HBO Max show, Legendary. He advocates for trans-masculine visibility in voguing, in boxing, and in the film and television industry. Besides working on his book chronicling the history of Besides working on his book, Baloo is rewriting his original pilot, which reached the second round of the 2018 Blacklist Macros Episodic Lab competition. Sidney is grateful for his global experiences as they have allowed him to connect stories across continents and have many of his own assumptions about the world blown apart. Sidney, Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? You've been busy. Oh, my goodness. I know. It's so funny. I'm like, oh, so embarrassed at how busy. But, yes, I've been busy. I'm kind of running around a little bit these days, working on writing. I'm working on a new show, getting ready Mm -hmm. uh, for uh, Legendary Season 2. There's just, like, a lot going on, but it's all Ah! exciting. 
Well, you know, one of the things that first caught my eye is, like, you're originally from Chicago. And I think of Chicago as, like, my second home. I love Chicago. Yes, you know, really, Chicago is just, like, so cool. And, but, you know, then, as I was listening to you talk, once you talked about how, I mean, you left there, and after a while, you know, you decided that you wanted to go to Europe. And I know a lot of people think, oh, you know, if you're black and you can get to Europe and you're just going to be so accepted. And, yes, there are good things about it, you know. But I heard you talk about the realness that everything isn't like sunshine and roses. What was it like being this kid from Chicago when you settled into in Europe? And what were you surprised about and what exceeded your expectations? Ooh, what was I surprised about? What did you find out? Well, I'll say this, because Paris, I think, is very different from France as a whole. It's the same way New York is not, you know, that's not all of the U.S. Uh, mm-hmm. But, um, I mean, for me, the thing that always attracted me to Europe, to be very honest with you, God is always curious about the experiences of people of color. Because I remember back in 2004, I was in high school, and there's these protests that were happening in Paris, the suburbs, which in Paris is kind of like the hood. And mm-hmm. for me, I was always just curious, like, oh, what is it like to be a black person or a brown person over there? And that's what, that's what piqued my interest, because I saw those people in the New York Times, but I didn't see them in my textbook. And that's why I was like, huh, you know, I've never, I don't even know the history of this, and I had to look into colonialism, I had to learn about you know, all, all kinds of things, stuff that I wasn't exposed to, and I just thought, wow, this is so fascinating, and maybe their experience could tell me something about myself. So mm. um, as far as, you know, expectations and things, I think for a lot of people, we have a very romantic view of Paris. You know, there's very, like, you know, there's so many movies to put, uh, Amelie, whatever, um, but there's also, like, Paris is a great to it. You know, it's a very modern city. And uh, I think it's very alive in a lot of different ways. So they love their history, but they also like to put graphics. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think it was like a mix of things. And, and for me, the biggest thing was the second time I was there, because I first studied abroad. I did my undergrad there. Or, sorry, I did a third year abroad there. Um, but then when I went back for my master's, I think this is when the world really opened up to me because – that's when I really got into the ballroom community, which is full of black and brown LGBTQ people, and I was able to see a version of myself and really connect with people on a certain level, but also respect the cultural. Um, that was very, very eye-opening. And, and it, was a, it was a total contrast from the very elite and elitist university that I was studying at, because mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like I was going from one place to the left bank, which was all like you know, rich kids. I was at this very prestigious school called Sciences Po, which, you know, French presidents or grandkids and stuff, they, you know, they send them there. And then I would go to the ball, and that was like kids in the suburbs, you know, people who look like me, people who, um, you know, had a very different life perspective, who were way more cosmopolitan. Because I think one of the things I learned when I was in Paris is they're not so, like, there's an anti-blackness, but it's more anti-African. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's like they'll accept you if you're African-American, right, because you're American and there's a lot of cultural capital in being American, and especially African-American because I think people in Europe, they really appreciate 
African-American culture, they understand the history. But then when it comes to their own black people who are there, it's very much like, you know, Africans, mm, they're backwards. They're, you know, there's like mm-hmm. a very, there's a certain attitude around um, Africa, which I was very surprised to see. So, you know, there are just a lot of different things like that that I just found very interesting. You had a very, you know, a weighty, serious background, what you were studying. You were studying policy and all that. When you, when, did you ever see yourself, as you got ready to go into college and you're looking at your advanced degrees, did you ever see yourself being where you are now? What was your, what was your, your goal? <laughs> oh, I mean, it's so funny because, you know, the thing that defines my era was I grew up in the Obama era. Like, I realized when mm-hmm. I look back at my trajectory, uh, 2007, that was my first year of university at the University of Pennsylvania. I, even in high school, I remember my friends, we, we try, I tried to beg my mother, can we please take the minivan to go to Springfield, Illinois, to go see Barack Obama announce Joe Biden as, as his running name. And I remember <laughs> my mom, she didn't trust us with a car, so we had to go and beg my friend Sylvia who was like, you know, salutatorian basically. And her parents, who were like Republicans, could understand this is a historic moment. You guys need to get in the car and go down there and go see history. So, you know, that was all around me. And I remember, like, he gave, when he gave his very famous um, speech in Philadelphia um, at the Constitution Mall, you know, I remember I was there. Um, and, and I remember also... Um, that summer, you know, after he won in 2008, I remember um, I knew, I was like, I got to get to D.C. I got to figure out some way because that's where, that's where the world's moving. That's where I need to be. And I ended up getting this internship with the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation mm-hmm. because they have an internship for black students. And so, you know, I, I interned for my standard at the time. There was a guy who replaced Barack Obama in Illinois is a, a little bit of a scandal. I don't know if you remember Roland W. Burris, but uh-huh, I ended up uh-huh. in his Senate office. And, um, you know, and, and at that time, um, I remember I had to take this, like, this required class, which was for, um, it was for um, environmental, environmentalism. And it was something to get me out of, like, a science requirement. And I was so inspired because I thought, my God, who, you know, which policymakers understand all these, you know, intricate details about wind turbines and solar power, and, and that really got me into eco-justice. And, and so I was kind of on this policy route for a very long time. I, um, I, I also did this internship um, in Berkeley, California, at the um, Green Line Institute, and it was all about eco-justice. Or the, you know, the, the part that I was focusing on looked at, um, ways that we could get minority and low-income families a part of the Green Revolution, right? And mm-hmm. from there, that's what brought me to Germany because I had studied abroad. I was like a political science major by that point at Penn, and I studied abroad in Paris. I love Paris, but I lived for Berlin. And I was like, how do I get back there? And I remember mm-hmm. I talked to one of my German professors. I took like a class in Marx, and I was close to the professor guy, Eric Cherosinski, who's amazing, and he was like, Sid, you should apply for a fellowship, and, you know, Germany, they're doing tons of stuff around renewable energy. You should go there and check it out. And so I ended up getting this fellowship through the DAAD, 
for the German Academic Exchange uh, Service. And basically, that allowed me to, um, you know, to do this research. I was, I was really, I was living like a whole different life. I was working in like utilities. You know, I'm, I was looking at smart, uh, smart grids and uh, renewable energy and ways that, you know, we can expand access to, to all Americans at that point. And what happened with the whole ballroom thing is it happened by accident. It was like, you know, I'm in, mm-hmm. I'm in Berlin. I was doing this research first at the Free University in Berlin. And then um, I ended up going to, um, I, I started working at this other think tank after that fellowship ended. And it was a place called the Logic Institute. And I remember I had this roommate at the time who was West German, um, non-binary. And all of a sudden we're talking about Paris and Burning. And we're just, you know, teaching about the movie. And then they go to me, they're like, you know, you can take a voting class here if you want. And I thought, what? What the hell is voguing doing in Berlin? Are you kidding? And sure enough, they were like, you know what? Yeah, there's this woman. Um, and, you know, sure enough, there's this woman, Georgina, who at the time was part of the House of Melody. Um, and Georgina is an Afro-German woman who is a dancer, choreographer. She had gone to... Um, she had gone to New York, like a lot of dancers, choreographers do. You know, they save up their coins, they come over, over the summer, they take a ton of classes at Broadway Dance Center, Paradance, all these places, and then usually somehow they kind of fall into the ballroom thing. And it might be that back then they would go to Vogue Night, which was like a regular voguing night that would happen at Escalitas, which is a popular club in New York. Or they would, you know, take a, a class or something, and then she was like, you know, I want to bring this back to my home country. So she would, she would like, fly people out from New York, teach workshops, do stuff, and then she would go to fall. So I took her, her voguing workshop, and at the time I thought, you know what, let me do this, because I, was, I remember seeing the YouTube clips of people doing dramatic spins and dips and, you know, really hyper-feminine movement. I was like, oh, you know, back then, this is before I started transitioning, when I identified mm-hmm. as a lesbian, as queer, and I remember I was like, you know, I failed at femininity because I was a little butch. <laughs> I was like, maybe I can, maybe I can learn through these dance classes. That was what I, <laughs> I came and thinking. And then what's funny is, you know, there's so many styles of voguing, and Georgina went through so many different styles. And I remember she told me afterwards, she's like, you know, you're really good at the master stuff. You should check that out. And I was like, yeah, I know, it's fun in the back, you know? <laughs> so, so, mm-hmm. so it was just so funny because it was just um, very eye-opening. And then, and then from there, I remember um, she threw a ball in um, – she threw a ball in – oh, she threw a ball in Dusseldorf. Um, and I remember I was there to support, and I remember I was just feeling the music, and I had a little, you know, I had a little drink here or there. And I just got up and walked the category. It was audience best dress. And I won. And I won the prize. <laughs> and, I, and I had this, like, fur coat that I got at, like, a thrift store with my mom. We called, it was this big white fur coat. We called her Diana. And uh, it was like Diana Ross, you know, from, like, you know, one mm-hmm. of her performances. And, um, you know, and, and I was like, wow, you know, it's, just, it's such a rush, you know, for you. I think when people next win a category, you know, it's like you get the little, you know, the little kick in the pants. It's like, oh, you got to keep going, you know. It's, there's something here. And I remember that night, that's when I met Lysandra Ninja, who is the mother of the ballroom team in Paris. And Lysandra, 
she's, you know, such a sweetheart. And I remember she, you know, at the time I knew I was going to do this master's program, dual degree in urban planning, and it was between Chantal <laughs> in Paris and then the London School of Economics. And she, you know, when she was at the ball, I was like, you know, I'm going to be in Paris. She was like, oh, baby, you know, you're not telling you you're in town. I introduced you to the girls, you know, and I was like, okay. And so when I got to Paris, like a couple months later, um, you know, I, I hit her up finally. Like I had a very rough semester. And, um, you know, she introduced me to everybody, and it opened up my world like so much. It was like next level, like, you know, because it was just like meeting tons of people. Um, I was also... Um, I was also just, you know, I, I mean, there was just so many things, so many doors that opened up for me. And um, it was just, you know, incredible. And, and by that point, I remember I had taken a couple old way workshops, and old way performance is the style of voguing that I do, which is the original style of voguing. So it means having geometric poses, shapes, you know, your inspiration, mm-hmm. some hieroglyphics. You incorporate some popping. There's some elements of b-boying in there. Um, and I was just, I was asking around, I was like, who's, who's doing this out here? And I remember somebody, um, this girl, Fonfine, she, she was like, excuse me, you know, the only person who's doing Ogway is Caroline Jones. If you have, like, okay, I don't know who this is, but I'll look her up. And sure enough, uh, there's this person, Caroline, from France, who's a, a B-girl, and she had gone to New York a lot. And she was in a house, the House of Ultra Omni, which is one of the older houses in the New York Ballroom. And she, she was like, all right, if I train you, you got to be in my house. And I was like, okay, like, you know, let's go. And so, you know, I started walking more balls. And then by the time my time was up in Paris, I went off to London to the second part of my master's. And that's when the research part of my work kind of kicked in because I got to know some of the folks in the ballroom scene in London, because there's a small scene in London. And with the folks out there, um, I, you know, they're a lot smaller, but, you know, they're still growing. And I remember there was, like, a lot of DJs were retiring because it's a lot of work to DJ a ball. You know, you got to stay up eight hours and wait for all the kids to stop carrying on and stuff like that. And um, so I started DJing, and um, I remember, actually, a friend of mine, um, this uh, friend, he was asked to speak, he's trans, he was asked to speak on a panel about Paris burning. And I remember, um, he was like, oh, okay, maybe, you know, maybe you want to do this. And it was at Goldsmith University. And I thought, I thought, I was like, well, you know, what if somebody asked me a question I don't know the answer to? Like, I don't want to say something stupid. Let me talk to the father of my house. And so I reached out to, um, at the time, the father of my house, Kevin Ami, who is one of the, like, OGs of ballroom. Mm-hmm. And I just asked him, I was, I was, you know, I was like, so, you know, I was asking him about this history. And, you know, I thought our conversation would be, like, 30 minutes long. It was, like, three, four hours. And he would be dropping all this knowledge, all this history. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, who finds this down? And at the time... Um, I feel like the the part where it shifted from this is my passion to this is my purpose, um, and you know, and that's both really. Was I I for my master's thesis? I was debating. I was like, oh, what do I do? And at first, I thought, oh, you know, maybe I'll do this eco justice 
uh, record on New York, uh, rebuilding post Hurricane Sandy. I wanted to do this, like, you know, look at if the rebuilding was equitable along, like, racial, social justice lines. But then I thought about it, and I was like, Sid, if you go to New York, you just want to vote. So <laughs> why don't you work on mm-hmm. figuring out how to do that? Um, and so I told my advisor about my talk to Kevin, about the panel discussion I was on at Goldsmith, and he was like, you know what, you can totally make this work. You make this work for your project. Um, uh, urban planning in the UK is in the um, environmental and geography department. And he was like, kind of geography in some way, and you can totally do this project. So I was, he was like, I don't know the literature, but I'm sure it's out there. So sure enough, I found a lot of great work, especially by Marlon and Bailey, who uh, is a professor who did this book called Which Cleans Up the Pub. Like one of the first accounts, it's an ethnography of his account of being in the ballroom skating point. And he wrote a lot about the idea of black queer geography, how black queer space makes. And then he tied that a lot with ballroom. So I was looking at basically what I did was when I did my field research, I came to New York and I asked the question um, how has the uh, the unique geography of New York City affected the history and evolution of the ballroom scene in, in, this, in this town. And uh, what I did was I asked icons, pioneers, legends, people who are older in the community, take me to a part of New York City you believe is most relevant to the history and evolution of the ballroom scene, and tell me about your history within the city. So depending on their era of kind of prominence as a community, uh, we would be in a different part of town. So if you're older, somebody like Kevin, who was in his like late 50s, 60s, it was all about Harlem. You were uptown, coming all the things, all the diners that used to sit. And then if you're somebody who's maybe a little bit younger, maybe in your 50s or late 40s, it was all about uh, the West Village, Christopher Street, the pier, um, you know, all that stuff. Um, it was just very interesting to see these uh, the different ways that depending on who you are and, uh, you know, your time and space, it, it was really different. And so I wrote my master's thesis, and I remember I kind of had this little postpartum after I finished it, and I was just like, okay, you know, what do I do? What's next, you know? And I, at the time, a friend of mine was like, well, Sid, you do a PhD. And I thought, oh, is that why people do those things? And so... I applied to PhD programs. By that point, I was ready to come back to the U.S. And so I had applied to programs in um, in the U.S. and I had gotten into this program at the University of Pennsylvania in the African Studies Department. And I, you know, did a year in New York before heading down to Philly, and then I was in Philadelphia. And you know, it was kind of. I mean, it was, it was a very difficult adjustment in many ways, but the hardest part, honestly, is, like, I just had a very transphobic experience, sadly, in that department um, mm-hmm. with a lot of professors, with students, and it really was a moment where I had to force myself to think, okay, shit, you know, like, by that point, I was very out of trans, very proud of myself, and I'm like, okay, I'm not going into a closet for nobody, first of all. Uh, Thank second you. of all... Uh, mm-hmm. I was very, I was very much like, you know, I knew in my heart of hearts, you know, I see my work as being accessible. That's my big thing. I'm not trying to justify myself 
to, um, you know, basically rich white people. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. want my work to be accessible to everyone. I think that, every, you know, knowledge is power and knowledge is for everybody. Knowledge is for everybody. So, um, I, and I knew also with that from my work, I knew I wanted to write a trade book. I didn't want to write an academic book. I, I, I really am not a fan of, you know, very flourishy language to get straight to the point. And, you know, to be honest about what you're saying, let's do it. So I left that program. And it was, you know, it was very hard, I think, for a lot of people during academia to leave. You know, it's like a large chunk of your life. And for me, um, school was really my way of, you know, finding opportunities. And I think for a lot of black people, for a lot of queer people of color, especially, you know, we don't have a lot of resources for many of us. So school is oftentimes, you know, the thing that is seen as ticket. And I, and I think also for a lot of professors, especially professors of color, they try and, like, you know, tell you, like, oh, you know, this is this is your ticket out. This is your ticket out of financial strife. It's, you know, getting mm-hmm. a 10-year track position, mm-hmm. which, mind you, is so rare. I mean, my God. Like, <laughs> I was like, you know, it's like a needle in a haystack trying to find one of those things. And so, um, and not only that, but I... I not at all committed to the academy. You know, I just did not see this as valuable. Um, and and I, I have to be very honest with you. I think, especially when it comes, I think for for a lot of queer people of color, you know, a lot of queer people in general, like our history is not written down yet. And there's so many different ways of creating text. You know, because a text isn't necessarily just something like it's published by an academic journal. A text can mm-hmm. be a movie. A text can be a documentary. A text can be, you know, I don't know, at this point, Twitter posts. You know, it can be a lot of things. Um, so, yeah, for me, I was just like, you know, this isn't the right place. This, this place is not actually feeding me um, intellectually or spiritually. I need to go where I can stay. And so I did back to New York. Um, and I still was trying to pursue this project is doing oral history because also the reality is for a lot of queer people of color, LGBTQ elders, you know, I mean, for them to even get to the city is kind of You know, so many of our elders have survived the AIDS epidemic, they survived the crack epidemic, mm-hmm. they survived, you know, damn near everything. So, um, and I really recognize that, you know, I see the power in that, I see the power of sharing those stories and making sure that history is lost. So that's how I started on the track of writing the history down and pursuing the goal, which I, I continued, which is to do this oral history project about ballroom history and make sure those stories are told, shared, and served so that, you know, the, the, the children of the people can also hear them and share well, Sid, I want to take a quick break, and then I want to talk to you about two, two parts of ballroom and about the academic part. So we'll be right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, 
visit the center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. here on Collections by Michelle Braun, and I'm talking with Sydney Ballou. Sid, you know, you were talking about how, you know, you were, you've seen ballroom. You've seen it in Europe. You've seen it in New York. I know that there's ballroom in Chicago. How would you compare, or is there, um, is there a comparison between the different places where you see it, ballroom in the Midwest, ballroom in New York, ballroom in Europe, or is there, are there something in the community that are consistent no matter where you find it? Ooh. So um, if I may, the, the question was um, kind of like what are the consistencies between ballroom scenes in different cities and different places and what are the differences? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also that Ooh, it's more than just dancing. It's like that sense of family, you know? Oh, yeah. No, definitely, definitely. You know, one thing I think what's so interesting to me especially as I've had experience um, both in the ballroom scene in Europe and in uh, different cities in the U.S. I mean, for one, I think that there's kind of like, um, you know, sometimes in different cities there's almost like a specialty of like certain categories, like there'll be a certain person who's from a certain place and then, you know, they they create this spiral effect where, or a halo effect where it's like everybody – um, there's a lot of people who end up walking that category. So, like, for example, in Philadelphia, I mean, that's, like, the hometown of folk femme dramatics or, or really uh, femme queen performance dramatics because Ashley Icon, um, who's mm-hmm. a femme queen or a trans woman in the ballroom scene, she pioneered that category. So there's a lot of people from Philadelphia or, like, Philadelphia in many ways. Um, there's a lot of people kind of specialize in that. So you see things like that. I think also what I find really interesting are the ways that people in other countries kind of adapt their own culture and it fuses with ballroom in a certain way. Because, for example, in Paris, there really is no space for identity politics. Like, for example, the French Constitution, like, banned um, the use of the word, even the word term, like, race, I believe. Um, like, they don't do racial statistics in France. So, and not only that, but there's very few people of color in not only in positions of power, but also just, like, in media in general. So in many ways, ballroom is, like, this vector for a lot of black and Arab, North African, French people, people of first or second generation, or even, like, third generation, to find themselves, you know? And it's so interesting because ballroom, I personally believe, because not only because it comes from New York City, but because it has this unique history rooted in the new Negro, like we are like a hundred years from mm-hmm. the Harlem Renaissance and the idea of African-Americans being able to find a new sense of freedom in Northern cities and specifically New York city. To me, this is part of the ethos that is ballroom, right? This is the freedom that you see of expression of dance, of, of being able to embrace your identity, regardless of whatever people, whatever other people think of, you know, and um, and also, uh, it's part of that creative tradition that works in the same way. And um, 
so it's very interesting for me to see the ways people have connected with that and have been able to embrace themselves. So, for example, Vice uh, did, like, this very interesting piece about the ballroom scene in Auckland, New Zealand. And there were a lot of people who were LGBTQ identified, who were Maori, who were indigenous. And it was so interesting because you could see that part of what they were fighting back against was the colonial legacy of British, you know, British colonialism, which has this, like, you know, religious aspect that says that, you know, trans identities are bad or that gay and lesbian identities are bad. And, you know, part of what they're fighting for is, again, this freedom, this, and, and it's fighting back against that. So, you know, on the one hand in the U.S., it's like it's a reaction to slavery and, you know, um, the, you know, transatlantic slavery and all of that. And then in other places, it's really interesting because I see people of color, especially trans queer people of color, uh, reclaiming their own identities and also finding um, even those LGBTQ identities in their own cultural practices, you know? For example, like, there were always, like, third and multiple genders in places like, um, in, um, like, for example, in, in the uh, Pacific, like, in places like Hawaii and Polynesia and so on, and in, even in other places, too. And so it's kind of interesting that, like, ballroom is kind of like a lens to reclaim yourself, regardless of who you are. Um, and, and I feel like I've seen that multiple times. And, not, and, not, and I also want to stress, not just for people of color, but even, like, for the cisgender women who are in the ballroom scene, like, so many of them, right, like, even, we have to remember that white supremacy and white heteropatriarchy, it impresses everybody. And it says some women are beautiful and some women are worthy and some are not. Mm-hmm. And ballroom says everybody is worthy. Everybody has something special about them that is worth celebrating and worth seeing. And that is kind of, to me, what the beauty is about the whole practice in the cultural tradition is it operates by a completely different ethos um, and, a, and a completely different set of uh, social and cultural rules, which says, you know what, if you can bring it, if you can show everybody and let them know it, that there's something special about you, we want to see that. You know, that, that's it. That's, that's the rule. You know, there's, there's no other rules beyond that. And I, I really love that. Yeah, you know, I mean, because I was, um, you know, there's people I've talked to who have talked about, you know, that that was when, when they attended, that that was when they could fully, totally be themselves. And, you know, that's part of being our, for when we're talking about racial, social, and gender justice, is that to be accepted, to be who we are as we are. And this is a, a, a place where you can be there. You can do that. Now, I can recall, um, you know, there, there's ways that you talk about the importance of visibility. And there was, for the longest, it was like terraces burning. And then, of course, then Madonna hijacked Vogue, you know. So then it sort of like went back underground. Then now you start to see... Well, well I'll, 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 I'll just interject to say, Madonna did not hijack Vogue because we have to remember... Mm-hmm. Jose and Louis Extravaganza, Jose is the father of the House of Extravaganza, mm-hmm. and they were the dancers choreographers for, for not only the, not only for, um, the music video, but also for her Blonde Ambition tour. So mm-hmm. they were partners in that, and they were credited for that. 
And, you know, I, I think there's kind of been a misreading for Madonna, you know, based on maybe, like, you know, certain things she said over time, et cetera, et cetera. But she was a club kid in New York. So she knew, she mm-hmm. knew about voguing. She knew what it was. Um, she just helped elevate it to a new stage because she was such a huge pop star. So that's just one thing I, I just want to, you know, put on the record. Mm-hmm. It's like people, I think, are like, oh, she took it. It's like, no, no, no. She collaborated with the right people. She paid them the right amount of money, and she gave them the right credit. And I got that from the source. Like, I went to Jose myself and asked him. So mm-hmm. I just want to put that out there. <laughs> but, well, yeah, but, sorry, but, continue. But, you know, but, no, no, and that's fine. But, but you know, what I, I think that what a lot of people, you know, suddenly they just thought, you know, that it took away from a really – it didn't take away from it. People didn't talk about, like you said, the history and what it meant to the community. You know, it's it just sort of like – like a lot of things get mainstreamed, you know, and right, yeah, yeah. So I, yeah, I get, I get it, I get totally what you're saying, um, which makes sense. Yeah, of course you do. <laughs> about, okay, now you, yeah, I like that you're talking about like how you. It, it tickled me in part because how you were saying how you didn't get the. You thought that the dancing would help you get with the, the more the feminine part. And it's funny right. how I had I interviewed somebody once who said that, who was a butch lesbian who said, you know, well, you know, and their parents had sent them to charm school, hoping that they would film them up. And I thought that when you said that, that's what I it made me think about it. But mm. often, you know, really often when people see when they look at when they think about it, they think of trans women. But you're studying. To, you're talking about transmasculine visibility. I have some very right. good friends who are very visible as trans men. Carter Brown who and Tyler Brodus, both who have testified and on behalf of trans rights before Congress, both of them who are out there doing it. They're of a gen- different generation. How do you feel your generation needs to talk about Trans-masculine visibility. Oh, this and is a great, great question. Oh, you're so sweet. this is this is a great question because um, you know sometimes I think there isn't an equal representation when it comes to just trans issues and some of it. I mean, there's like a myriad of reasons why we can explain that, but I think for me. Well, one, when it comes to ballroom, ballroom was created by trans women. What we, you know, the kind of people we consider today to be trans. In the past, it's kind of hard to talk about trans identities because we use, we use different language back then. So, you know, in the ballroom scene, we called them femme queens. Um, sometimes back then they were known as drag queens. But a lot of these, these ways that we're talking about, so the word transgender has changed. But um, we know that this space was First and foremost, it was it was a it was a, competi- a competition space between female impersonators, and then it expanded into other gender categories, right? So that's first and foremost. Second, I think for trans men and trans masculine people, um, you know, our voices definitely need to be heard, and I think it's also about giving us the opportunity to speak up and speak out. I think that it's also, um, you know. Uh, I don't know, it's, it's hard because I think there's a ways that we deal with different issues. 
because um, people think that, oh, trans, I know what that means because I know one trans person. But, you know, that, mm-hmm. like, those experiences are, are so, so very different. I think for us as trans masculine people, as trans men, especially for me as a black trans man, you know, I, I think when I saw the death of Tony McShade this year, a black trans man who was killed by Tallahassee police, um, you know, his name wasn't brought up as often as some other names. Uh, of people that you hear about in the news, even though the reality is, is you don't flip a switch and become a man. First and mm-hmm. foremost, we, you know, we deal with transphobia in so many different ways, and that can show up as, I mean, I, I get called tons of names. You know, I get called faggot, I get called whatever, and um, so I think it's important to recognize that, like, for trans men, it's not like you become a man and then your life just gets easier. It's like, no, actually, you deal with a whole set of discrimination that's, like, new. Mm-hmm. Um, and also there's other ways that you deal with misogyny because people are committed to um, undervaluing your gender identity or, you know, trying to discredit you or disrespect you. Um, I also think the reality is, you know, when you... If, if you are, you know, a trans, identify as a trans man or trans person, and especially if you're black or brown, you will still deal with the same issues that cisgender people, specifically cisgender black and brown men deal with, with police. You know, I, I'm very well aware of um, how much I can be a target to, to the police. Mm-hmm. I am very much, you know, aware that I am not immune from anything, especially not because I have you know, all these degrees and stuff, it's like, no, 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 the, the cop is not going to think, you know, twice before pulling the trigger out to see it, you know, you. Thank you. you do something. So, so yeah, no, these are things that I think sometimes get overshadowed, and I, I think it's also just because of a certain level of uh, visibility um, about, you know, our, our precarity, I think for many of us, like, when you have intersectional issues, right, of, like, one, you were assigned female at birth. The world has a certain way of looking at black girls and determining what your future is, right? Um, two, I think, like, uh, when you're transgender and you're black, the world also has, you know, makes decisions about you. Um, and so there's just, like, you know, a myriad of things. That, you know, if you add on anything else, if you have a, a disability, if you're, you know, there's just, like, so many, so many things that we just constantly have to fight back against. And so I think for us, when it, you know, for transmasculine people, for us to be visible is so powerful and it's so liberating, not only for us, but for other people too. Well, you know, I can tell you one of the things that Carter Brown told me, like what, that was one of the things, like he said that, that as he, like, if he got pulled over at one point in time, he knew that as he was transitioning, he probably would get pulled over being a black man but then also, until he got all the gender markers, people would look at his, his, it opened a second door of discrimination and harassment and possibly violence when they saw, you know, his ID, which did not match with what he was presenting as. But then later on, in talking to Carter and to talking to some other trans men, there is a way that to me that trans men can make you think about things differently. What is parenting? You know, what it means to be parenting. Um, I have friends who, a very good friend, who is a trans man who has 
is also a birth parent, and what does that look like? And really, to make mm. people understand our humanity, and it's more than you know, just like a biological thing. I think that the role of, of trans masculine people is so so underestimated. I mean, it's so under undercover yeah. that if you really talk the way it could lift the world, people up to think about who they are and what we can oh, all yeah. be. Oh. oh, yeah. No, I, I 100% agree. I think, you know, yes, I think that I, I, I think that uh, for us, for transgender people, we have a unique, um, we have such a unique experience, I think, um, because of our positionality. Because I know what it was like to be a little black girl. I know what, what the world thinks of you. Um, I know, you know, I, I feel like one of the things that has been so interesting for me uh, with transitioning is, like, when I am in these intimate spaces with other men, and especially black, cisgendered men, you know, whether it's, like, I'm at the barbershop or something, and, I, you know, I just see so many things in terms of, um, I don't know, just, like, ways of rethinking masculinity. Uh, and that has kind of been, I think, a gift with transitioning is that I get to look at my masculinity very critically and think about what are the ways that masculinity can be healing? What are the ways that it can be uplifting? What are the ways that I can use this positionality that I have for good? Um, and, and that has been, to me, like a huge gift because I think, especially now, you know, we're all talking about masculinity, ways that we can rethink the world, and I think there has been this tendency to completely discard masculinity as it's all bad. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, you know, I don't want to discount the care from my father um, when I was a kid. And, you know, as a black man who spent time with me, who cared about me in a very different way from my mother, you know. And I, I think all of that is valuable. And I think all of that is worth discussing and uplifting. And, yes, you should leave aside the toxic parts, but we shouldn't say that, you know, it's all bad. We should just look at, like, you know what, there's a lot of good here. There are many ways that, you know, I, I think masculinity, especially black masculinity, can be very, very caring, very loving, very um, uplifting in very unique ways um, that should be, um, you know, exalted as much as anything else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, it is. It's really that, that voice is starting to come out. And it's like that someone who can experience that whole and bring it and bring it to that and open in spaces where we're not having those conversations, you know. And I think that that's what's important. A lot of what you do, you know. Now, I before we go into what you're doing now, I have to talk about boxing. <laughs> I love that. I mean, we 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 gotta talk about boxing. I'm going to tell you, you know, when I saw that you were, you did uh, amateur boxing, um, you trained. I told you that, you know, my brother has done that. Now, what made you decide to step in the ring? Ooh, this is a great question. What made me decide? Well, I'll say this. So the first time I had studied abroad in Paris, um, I remember, right, so I remember I had... I, I was having a really tough time, you know, and I remember 
I was just thinking, like, oh, man, you know, I I wish I, I was like my friend Kat. And I had this friend Kat who's German. And I remember she was on the volleyball team, and she was just loving it. She had an amazing time. She had a French boyfriend. She had all these French friends. She was really, like, living it up. And I realized, I was like, oh, you know what? Next time I study abroad, I need to, like, get into a sport. I need to get into something that is outside of my study so I can, you know, kind of sustain myself and also, you know, just, like, be able to really integrate better. And so when I moved to Berlin, I remember I was looking at, you know, different sports there, and I saw that there was a women's club for boxing. This is, again, before I started transitioning. And um, sure enough, I got into this uh, amateur boxing. There's, like, a big team in Berlin um, of queer people who box. Um, and I just, you know, at first I was going there as a way to kind of counterbalance my studies. Um, I was trying to find basically a way to stay active. Sorry. I, I was trying to find a way to stay active and um, and to make friends, you know, because mm-hmm. it was kind of hard. I, I was, like, you know, just learning German, and boxing was my way that I did it. It was my way of integrating. It was my way of meeting people. It was my way of practicing with German, of just, you know, um, making community, really. And then I got so into it, I ended up, um, I ended up going to this other gym that was in former East Berlin, place called Blau Gelb, or Blue Yellow, and those other colors. And, you know, I made, I made this, like, circle of friends of, you know, there were a bunch of older guys at the gym who would just go there, you know, train, and they'd make jokes and stuff. And, and I, it was just like a family, you know. Like, I, I would go, and I had my guys, uh, Peter, Manfred, Biggie, and every Friday, they would go for drinks afterwards at this pub that was, like, up the street from the, from the gym. And I just loved hanging out with them and hearing the stories, you know. Again, it was, it was I feel like, for me, it's always about the stories. And, I, you know, mm-hmm. I remember one day it was, like, it was November 9th, and they were talking about where they were when the Berlin Wall fell down. Really, really interesting because everybody had you know, a different story. And it was just so incredible to me. It's like, wow, like, these people are like, they were there. You know, they had a front row seat to history. And I'm so honored to be in the presence of, you know, such incredible people who are just so sweet and so thoughtful. Um, so, yeah, for me, it was always about um, the community. And since I moved so much, you know, I was moving from Berlin to Paris to London to New York. Everywhere I would go, I would find the boxing gym because, mm-hmm. because boxing is really, you know, when they say it's like a religion, it really is. Like, you go to any gym, you'll find, the, you know, the fat guy who's funny, he makes all the jokes, you'll find the one guy who's like the muscle dude who, you know, does that crazy. And, and what's nice for me is it was always like I found my rhythm. So, mm-hmm. Paris, mm-hmm. I, I remember I went out to this place that was in the suburbs and it's ever called uh, Open VDAs, which is, like, just north of Paris. And out there, I remember um, I would, uh, you know, this is a place that was very black and brown and kind of working class or mixed. And I remember I just, like, you know, made friends with people, and I was able to really connect with people on the human level, which was just radically different from this super elitist you know, master's program I was in, 
And the same thing happened in London. I was at this gym, Islington Boxing, and that was in North London. And it was, you know, it was also like a motley crew of people. And it was a way for me to stay in shape, right, which is also much easier, I think, if you live that far north. Um, you know, in wintertime, it's like it gets really dark and um, it's hard to, you know, kind of keep motivated. But it was also a way for me to, um, again, just find community and stay grounded. And so when I moved to New York, I also came to Gleason. Um, I was trying to, like, get at least a couple more fights in because I, I had also started medically, socially transitioning by that point. But, you know, it was just too hard to kind of keep up with. Like, I, I started teaching again because when I was in Germany, when I was in Berlin, the first time around, I got so into boxing that I remember our, our coach actually offered for a group of us to teach um, a boxing, or, or sorry, to, to get a trainer's license to be able to teach. So, I, I mean, that was like the hardest thing I'd ever done in my life. So I, I had gotten this uh, trainer certificate, which required a, it was like there was an oral exam all in German, a written exam all in German around boxing. And it was like, you know, how about you German guys who are really scary, but, you know, it was a part of gold, but still, it was just like, you know, after I did that, I told myself, you know what, I can do anything. I, I just, you know, and, and so, yeah, I used to teach a clear training spot, and I also saw, saw how empowering it was for my community, because I think, especially for a lot of queer people, trans people, we're bullied. You know, we're bullied when we were kids. Mm-hmm. I was bullied by my older sister for being different. I was bullied by so many different people. So when you're able to kind of, like, reclaim your body and reclaim who you are, find your literal own strength. Um, because people think boxing is about aggression and anger, but it is literally the exact opposite. I mean, anybody who does a contact sport knows the moment people screw up is the moment they get angry, the moment they let their emotions take over and they're not present, right? Part of success with anything is always about presence. Always about being calm. Always about taking life as it comes, and it's about you know just just you know connecting with the moment and letting your body take over. And um, it was just amazing to like work with people, see them progress, and um, and that sort of thing. And I was able to do some of that in New York uh, with different organizations. But uh, for me, I think maybe like a year or two ago, I I'd gotten a concussion, and I was like, uh, you know, it was conflicted with my writing because at the time I was mm-hmm. you know really working on my career as, as a train rider, and I was like, okay, I can't actually do this work if I'm out for, like, weeks, <laughs> you know, so, mm-hmm. so I, you know, I kind, of, I kind of took a break. It's also a very, I think in the U.S. it's also very expensive, which was very different in, in Europe, I think because boxing was often subsidized by the state in a lot of ways, um, so for me, it was definitely, uh, it was a hard decision to have to kind of put my gloves down, but I think for now, it's, you know, it's kind of like, okay, I'll come back to it, you know, at least in this, as a form of training, and definitely as, as one of my favorite hobbies, kind of keeping me going, and, and really for me, it was always about, it was about the community, first of all, so, yeah. And, you know, I think, I think, too, you know, I mean, some people say, oh, ballroom and boxing, but there is, there are similarities, there's a when you see someone who is uh, training or sparring, there is a there's a beauty in it. There's the footwork. There's that tempo. There's that timing. Yes. And you can see yes. where 
in ballroom, you also have to have that presence, that, that timing, that tempo. You know, do you yes. find that, that one has, in, that, that, you know, every now and then when you're getting ready to, 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 to walk, that, that something from your boxing days helps? Helps with that? Yeah. You know what? My boxing, I truly believe, helps with my snapping. <laughs> I think mm-hmm. um, it helps with discipline. You know, because there's so many ways, but I think with boxing, it helps in other aspects of your life because you have to commit, you know, you commit to yourself. And you, you know, I remember I would wake up early and I'd like go jogging on the my boxing clothes, this uh, canal in Berlin, you know, in the snow. And it was like, I wanted to win. And if, you're, if you want to win, you got to put yourself in position to do that. So that means waking up early. That means, you know, training. That means stretching that you know it means a lot of things and it also means um finding your own self and your own style and your own voice in a certain way in your body and i think um yeah i think with, you know it's funny because i I'm not gonna lie i will do sometimes some shadow boxing before i hit the runway because that's mm. almost like a, a way that my body knows like we're about to go to that we're about to go to war um, because that's also what voguing is. Like, voguing is dance, but I think we have to remember it's rooted in a specifically African-American, a black diasporic tradition. And obviously, if you look at West Africa and the Caribbean, there are so many dance practices that were battles, right, that were like a way of communicating, a way of you know, signaling a competition. And I, and I truly believe that when you see ballroom, it is a continuation of that legacy. It's not like, you know, whatever, our ancestors were brought over here and they forgot all their traditions. Like, no, it's still somatically in our bodies. And I think that's also why we have to do it. It's so important to us. Like, you know, it's almost like as important as eating or breathing. <laughs> I was literally mm-hmm. just talking to my, my house mother today, Giselle Extravaganza. I was like... I was like, my, I can tell if I don't vogue for a while, my body gets a little funky and I get a little cranky and I, I have to, you know? And it, it, mm-hmm. it really is. And it's, you know, when I say it's an ancestral presence and it's an ancestral practice, these things are not a luxury. Things are not, they, they are part of us. And we have to honor that, you know? We have to honor that spirit and we have to allow that now. So, yeah, that's, that's kind of how I see I definitely see a lot of, you know, there's, there's tons of overlap. There's lots of boxes for great dancers. And as you said, it has to do with our footwork. And I, I think also we have to remember that Western European culture has a way of thinking about the art, right? As like capital A art, where it's capital C mm-hmm. culture, where it's dance, you know? And, and dance means there's, you know, an audience and a stage and, you know, all this kind of thing. Whereas like, we have to remember, like, our ancestors, they they may do with what the environment was, you know? And this goes back to this idea of black queer geography because one of the things that I found with that work is that, you know, for us, we made them, you know, a cipher. You can make a cipher out of anything. You could be in a parking lot and you can make a dance floor. You could be in, uh, you know, Radio City Music Hall and you could even have a dance floor, but... That can also be in your living room, you know what I mean? And that has to do with our ancestral, um, traditional practice of making that space and bringing those ancestors into that space, which I personally believe is also what we do in ballroom. When, when, we, when we move, when we, when we you know, make a runway, 
you know, because the other thing is, and that's true with Kusu Ballroom, I mean, this was a community that was created by, um, you know, there were so many people who were sex workers, who were people who were outcasts in society in different ways. Um, and, and there were also people who, you know, obviously had, you know, different forms of sort of like formal economic labor, whether they were working on Wall Street or whatever. But, you know, it's, it's this, like, melange of people um, who congregate in different spaces. And, you know, Christopher Street Pier, that, that space has been transformed for decades into a runway, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and that says something about the way that our bodies move in those places and they create that magic and they, cre- and they bring in the spirits and that, that tradition that, um, you know, that really marks where we come from and who we are. Sydney, we're going to take our second break, and then I want to talk about what you're doing now, which is writing, and what you bring to it. So we'll be right back. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. here on Collections by Michelle Brown with Sydney Ballou. Sydney, you know, one of our mutual Facebook friends is uh, Mecca Jamila Sullivan. And I talked to her just recently, and I was listening to how when you came on board to write with um, Legendary, and one of the things that you talked about and what she and I have talked about, and also with someone else who is it like, is Eric Darnell Pritchard. And we all talked, what we were talking about is how in telling our stories, there is, you know, they use to say that people are literate or literature, you know, it's sort of like if we don't talk like proper whatever, we can't tell our stories. But we can tell our stories in our own voice in a language that we understand that really expresses that. And for an when you came to Legendary, that seems mm-hmm. to be what they wanted you to bring. They didn't want, you know, just somebody to write and not to bring the realness by using right. language. Right. Definitely. Yeah. No, you know, it's so funny. I, I feel like it, for sure I am definitely somebody who has been, I guess the term would be blessed uh, and very fortunate um, where I came from a family that gave me a lot of opportunities educationally, that gave mm-hmm. me a lot of opportunities, um, you know, for me to be able to study at Ivy League schools, at the best schools in the world, and that also grounded me in a sense of my identity and my personhood as both a black person in this world and also as a uh, Trinidadian, my mom's from Trinidad and Tobago, 
I'm a South Asian person as well because my mom is Indian. And um, for me, the combination of that awareness and that ability to translate things, you know, to me it all kind of comes back to language, right? Because one of the things is that I had written a piece in the New York Times last October, and it was about uh, a discussion about realness in the ballroom scene because there's this kind of question of whether or not the realness category is still relevant, right, where it's like, okay, are we past this point where transgender and lesbian and gay bisexual people are accepted to society? Do we need to continue to do this performance of straightness or cisgender identity? Um, and when the showrunners of Legendary, they saw that article, they reached out to me because they were like, hey, you know, would you be interested in being a writer for the show? Because it's easier for us to train somebody who's a writer from the community how to write for television instead of the other way around, right? Because mm-hmm. it would be like ballroom is so vast and so intricate, it's, it's hard to translate to outsiders in a way. Um, and so it's funny because, like, when I look at this and I think about my own history with literally learning other languages of, like, I learned, you know, I'm fluent in French and I've learned how to speak German, um, ballroom is, like, in itself its own language, right? Cause it's, to me, my, my part of my thesis is, like, ballroom is a culture. It's not a subculture. It is a culture. And I say mm-hmm. that to say that it has its own logic, its own ethos, its own aesthetic, its own language, its own music, you know, its own dance. It's, it's like, you know, it's so many, so many things. So, um, yeah, when I got that call, it was, you know, a great opportunity for me. Um, I had, part of why I left the PhD program was, yes, I knew I wanted to write a trade book about ballroom history, but I also, at the time, was not being honest with myself about the fact that I wanted to be a screenwriter. I wanted to work in film and television, and at that point, I had started, you know, writing pilots, and I had gotten in touch with Penn alumni who worked in the industry in L.A., and, you know, everybody was telling me, Sid, you know, you just got to commit to writing. You got to commit to writing every day, which Sean Bryan says, if you're a writer, you write every day. Um, mm-hmm. And that also means studying, like reading scripts and reading books and really training yourself. And what's interesting is back then, and that was 2018, I'd written a pilot. It did well at a competition uh, for the blacklist and for macro, got to the second round. And it showed me, like, okay, Sid, you know, I can really do something here if I just commit. And, again, you know, I'm telling you this, and I'm thinking, you asked me about boxing. It was the same thing, right? You've got to commit. You've got to wake up every day, you know, do your push-ups, run two miles, you know. You've got to do whatever you've got to do, and you've got to commit to the process. And that's kind of how I saw writing. So, it was interesting because Legendary was kind of this moment where so many parts of my life were converging, where it was like, okay, my passion for writing, um, and specifically writing about ballroom, could get a very large mainstream platform. Um, my way of breaking into the industry, of breaking into Hollywood, um, also just gave me a foot in the door. It gives you a lot of credibility when you're a writer on a very successful and celebrated show. Um, it also, uh, you know, allowed me to kind of really think about what it means for ballroom, which in many ways is considered a kind of underground culture. You know, what does it mean when it's on the main stage with HBO Max, you know? And mm-hmm. I think it was really interesting to kind of think through and, you know, just kind of uh, work through, especially with my writing partner, Jack Mizrahi, 
who is an icon of the ballroom scene. He's a famous commentator, somebody who's been in ballroom for 30 years. I mean, he is truly, truly beyond a living legend, a living icon. And, um, and he also writes the dialogue for Billy Porter on Pose. So to be in the mm-hmm. writer's room with him and literally just, like, watch the way that he thinks, which is truly remarkable and incredible, it was, you know, it's, it's a memory that I have that nobody else from ballroom will ever share, and I feel very very privileged um, to have had that experience. So there were just a lot of things that were kind of coming together. And, and I think, um, especially when we think about these kind of cultures fitting in to the format of television, because television is a medium unto itself, right? Like ballroom has its own kind of logic, its formula, even its kind of cadence throughout the night. You know, there's a whole, there's a whole ritual and ceremony around categories, around, you know, the commentator, the music, et cetera, et cetera. And we were trying to, like, fit that into this, like, you know, this, this certain box for, for TV, right? And that means that some things will get lost, but that also means that some things will get added, which is kind of exciting. So um, it was really great to see not only all the houses just thrive on the show and afterwards, but also just to see the excitement because I think, um, you know, a lot of people in the community really, really, really love the show because, it was just like, wow, you know, can you imagine this thing that people have been doing in, like, you know, church gymnasiums in Harlem all of a sudden is, like, getting this, you know, several million dollar budget and being celebrated um, around the world. And, and I think what really got me was realizing, um, because I, I think through the executives at HBO Max especially, you know, they understood the impact that showing – LGBTQ, people of color, especially black people, there are many black transgender women on the show, showing them in their beauty of who they are, flaws and all, just their artistry, their creativity, and celebrating them will have this huge lasting impact on the culture, right? Because the reality is today, unfortunately, there's still so many black transgender women who are being murdered who are killed, mm-hmm. uh, not only in the United States, but on, around the world, especially in places like Brazil. And for, you know, just any person who's, who never who doesn't know a transgender person, maybe somebody, you know, for them to see these folks who are celebrated and who are creative, who are artists, who are thriving, who have interesting backstories with their families and with their chosen, you know, with their biological families, with their chosen families, that has just so much weight and it's just so powerful and honestly I'm truly truly grateful and I feel so privileged that I am able to be a part of of that project and um, you know it's just really something great and you know and even for our trans youth because I was telling someone I met a young trans woman who said that for the longest I mean she was just like in her early no she had just turned 20 And she said that she had lived, like, the only time she saw people who she thought were kind of like her, for the longest was like she lived through her computer. And often Mm. the images that she saw weren't, you know, didn't have that full life. And then as as things started to come out and she was able to get involved in community, meet other trans people, and recognize that there are lives, there are families. And, you know, and that's important. That's important. Like she was going to an LGBTQ center, and she knew the name of the building, but she didn't know that it was named after someone who had actually lived. 
And she was saying how mm. seeing these images and seeing these things showed her the endless possibilities her life could have, you know, mm. and yes. the responsibility yes. she had to those young trans people who she knew were coming up after her, mm-hmm. who are being born every day, who are, and so she had a responsibility to, for them to, to live her life yes. authentically. And you're doing mm-hmm. that, and, and not only in writing that, but you're also collecting, you're digging deep and collecting these stories so that it's out there. It's like, you know, you also want to say, you know, this is not brand new, you know, there have been trans people right. like forever. This is not brand new. And like what you were saying before, so many have died. So many in our community, the only time that you hear about not only the straight people and members in the, in the LG community only right. think about them on Transgender Day of Remembrance. But these are, this is right. a, these are people. These are people with lives. Right. And the fact that you're collecting that, I mean, that is just like my head is off to you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's, you know, I I just think, you know, and I would also like to say some of this too, you know, I'm, I'm 31 and as a millennial, I'm kind of in that cutoff period where I remember the lesbian bar, you know, where you would go and you would be in an intergenerational LGBTQ or LB space at that time, you know, and that they could be set of gay bars back then. And I feel like in today's Internet age, right, it's just everything is online and in some ways we're, you know, we're very connected, but we're also very disconnected. And, and I think mm-hmm. um, especially when it comes to LGBTQ youth, you need to know where you come from so you know where you're going, okay? Like that's something that has always been foundational to me, you know, with not only like Sankofa in terms of an African diasporic tradition of knowing your history, and I, I think that one of the benefits of ballroom is that it's so unique because you are constantly in an intergenerational space. There are people who are like 20 years older than you who've been in ballroom for, you know, 40 years, 50 years, and then there's people who are like, you know, so young, you know, in their early 20s and just learning and maybe even just learning about themselves, and the fact that we can coexist in this space. It's so powerful, and, and in many ways, to me, again, I see this as a reflection or continuation in many ways of, like, larger West African traditions of, like, being in intergenerational spaces and learning from your elders, you know? I think it's, it's just so, so, so very important that we continue those traditions. Um, so we understand that history is not really linear, you know? In some ways, it's very circular, mm-hmm. I think, like, you know, there's so many things that I learned about what it was like to be gay in the 70s in this pre-AIDS era that is just so radically different from the way that history is portrayed, right? Cause it makes it seem like everything was bad and, you know, and then it got better and, it's, you know, we're on this, like, progression line where it's like, you know, it, it was more complicated back then and, and the world is very different in certain ways. Um, it's very clear that, AIDS is really the thing that shook up our community. It took so many of our elders. Like, to me, I feel like we have this, like, gaping hole of a generation lost. Mm-hmm. There's so many, so many, and especially black and Latino people who, whose stories we have to still uncover, you know, who contributed so much 
to our world that we, we need to, like, go back and look at. And, and I also think what's hard is for many of our elders in the community, it's so traumatic. You know, these are people who they're best friends with. You know, I think now, obviously, with COVID, I think straight people are, are finally understanding what it's like to live in a pandemic, whereas for a lot of us, LGBTQ, if you were an ally back then, you already knew. You know, in many mm-hmm. ways, you saw your friends dying. You saw what it was like to turn on the news and only get bad news every day, right? And and I think, um, at least the way I see things, is I see a lot of parallels. It's obviously not the same thing, but there are many, many parallels. Uh, because I, I, I think, um, you know, just just understanding that reality and understanding that that trauma still lives in our community and that it needs to be understood and there needs to be space for it and it needs to be cared for. Um, is also powerful, and at least a step in doing that, I think, is, is making sure that people's voices are heard, that their stories are told, and um, and that they're uplifted altogether as a community. You know, I had talked to Victor Salvo, who's out of Chicago, does the Legacy Project, and he said that part of what made them start to capture these stories, these histories of our community was, he said, he went and saw the AIDS quilt, and he, what occurred to him was each one of those panels, there was a story that was lost. Mm. Yes. And, you know, and like you said, you know, if we, a lot of people, there are people who are living longer, but to have that opportunity, and really, like you said, in the bottom, it's so great that it is, it's very intergenerational to where you can hear these stories and how things connected and who did what and like like you were talking about who who had started the one house and now it's this one and this I mean and, and that who was in who was in Paris's burning and that history that continues to go. I mean Right. And that is, the work you have a full plate ahead of you. I mean it's like you never have to worry about <laughs> about running out of topics. You know <laughs> I mean really yeah. I mean you have I mean, you know, you, you've, got, you've got a lot of work ahead of you that's done. So I know that um, you said there's going to be a ne- the next season of Legacy. What else is ahead for Oh, Legendary. What, what yeah. are you doing? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, yeah, Legendary. So, um, you know, we're, we're looking at, um, you know, just with filming during COVID. I think there's, there's mm-hmm. a lot of questions about that. Um, mm-hmm. But for me, I'm working on my book. Um, so this book about the history of the ballroom community in New York City, that's definitely a big thing. Um, I'm also looking to move to Los Angeles. So I'm taking the next step in my writing career, which is very exciting, and um, just working on getting in a writer's room. That's, like, my big thing. I have my my nice, shiny pilot, and, you know, it's, it's going to be a lot of taking coffees and maybe over Zoom, <laughs> which I have mm-hmm. been doing, but... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just kind of getting my footing there and, and also continuing my work in the ballroom community. You know, ballroom wasn't, nec- it wasn't just a stepping stone to me, um, especially now in the house that I'm in, the house of extravaganza. It's, it really is about family, you know, and, and, and I realized, you know, family means showing up, means showing up for people. Um, for me also with my ballroom career, um, for me, like last year, I made history as the first transgender man uh-huh. to win a voguing category at the uh, Latex Ball, which is the biggest ball in New York. And it was a historic moment because for, for many trans, mess, and identified people, not a lot of people vote. And I'm kind of a rarity in that because 
I think it's because I started out in Europe and it's a little more focused on performance. Um, and in the U.S., there's more, I think, for trans men, there's more of an emphasis on the realness category of thug realness, executive realness, uh, schoolboy realness, et cetera. And, but for me, I was always interested in the dance aspect. I was like, no, no, I want to do that, you know. And um, for me to, to, to show up and show out and sit multiple people down, I will say, it was not, it was not a walk in the park. Right. There were at least like... Uh-huh. 15, 20 people walking. I was like, oh, my God, you know, I can't believe I got that far. Um, so it also means... There was no quick knockout, eh? You went all two Oh, rounds. no, 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 <laughs> darling. That was, that was multiple rounds, okay? Like, yeah, I, I mean, honestly, I had this, like, adrenaline rush that night. It was so crazy when I looked back. Um, but, you know, that's also what it means to be present, to be focused, to to, you know, really really be there and be in it to win it. Um, so I'm also looking for, you know, obviously to walk more balls, definitely get my legendary status. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> through wins and not just through, you know, connections. And, um, yeah, and I, you know, and with that, too, it's not to me just only about the wins. It's, one, it's my community. I love showing up for, for all those folks who I love and I love to see. Um, and it's also about exploring my body, you know, because I think mm-hmm. for me growing up, um, you know, identifying as a black girl, I mean, the world is telling you everything is wrong with your body. And then for me to transition, then it's like the world is telling me again everything is wrong with my body. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, you know, through all of this, through the boxing, through the voguing, it has been um, just reclaiming myself. And figuring mm-hmm. out what is, you know, what is a new place I can go. Because the thing is, transgender women of color in created voguing, they revolutionized it. And part of that is be- because of the way they were able to stretch the limits of gender, of artistry, of creativity. And for me, I'm curious, what can I do on the other end of that spectrum? That is, that is really my guiding curiosity when it comes to voguing and dance for me is I'm like, well, what's on that other side of the spectrum? Where can I go with it in a masculine way? What is a new area of performance that can blow people's minds that only I can do? Um, so I, I feel like, you know, I've been in the barn scene for eight years now. I, I feel like I still have areas that I'm curious about that I want to explore. Um, and that also means, you know, keeping with it and just keep training and keep coming out and keep turning it and keep making the gag. Well, you know, it's in a, and and I think that it's also so important because, I mean, and I've heard from trans men and trans women, like some trans guys who have said, you know, like they just wanted to transition. It was hard enough. There's all these other things of being masculine. It is, you know, and so they just wanted to to blend in, and they didn't want to be in the spotlight. Where often you see trans, some of our trans sisters are in the spotlight and they're doing it. But you're starting to see more and more trans men come out. So it's important that in this mm. type, it's so deep in our culture because there you are bringing this, you know. I mean, mm. I think it's just, it's just like so important for our mm. community. Thank you. Yes, and, you know, you said this earlier, visibility is so crucial. I mean, if it, were, if it wasn't for the black transgender men I saw in the ballroom scene, when I was, um, before transitioning, I saw 
wow, you know, I saw guys like Keith Milan, who is an amazing media writer, yeah. Yeah. journalist, well, black. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, just seeing him and hearing his story, I was able to see myself. I mean, he was so crucial to my coming mm-hmm. out of trans and realizing, like, wow, there were so many feelings that I had about myself, about my body that I didn't have language for. You know, we live in such a different world now. We, you know, you got kids who are coming out as trans um, at younger ages, but it's also like, you know, we didn't have that language in the 90s, or it wasn't widely available, you know, not in the Midwest mm-hmm. where I was. So for me to be able to connect with those stories, I, I recognize that. And there have been, I mean, surprisingly enough, I've gotten a couple of messages from trans men of color who hit me up on, like, Instagram. They're like, you know, I love, you know, thank you so much for your presence and for the work that you're doing in ballroom. I never thought there was a space for me in ballroom. I see your work and I see that there is, you know. Or, I, you know, I see the work that you're doing and it shows me what's possible. And I, and I will say this, too, you know, I, I remember when I was younger, my mom gave me this book, and it was, like, 100 great African-Americans, and it was just, you know, this was, like, pre-Google era, <laughs> where people still had, like, paper books and encyclopedias, and, and this book, you know, it was so great. I would just leave through it, go to a random page, and you just read about a black person who did great things. You know, you read about Ivy Wells, you read about... Um, you know, Oprah Winfrey, you read about, you know, there are more, like, you know, Arthur Ashe, just, like, people who do great stuff. And, and you know, having that book showed me what was possible. You know, it said, like, okay, like, you're going to be in this book somewhere <laughs> at some point mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. with these people, you know. So it's kind of, it's interesting when I look back at these, like, little things sometimes of, like, you know, I think in so many ways it was that foundation that I knew um, that I was destined to do great things. That's part of my path and that's part of who I am. And I'm not really doing it for myself, but I'm doing it with my community and for future generations as well. Like it, it, it's like almost like there's a spirit or a power that is moving through me. And my role is to get, still and get very clear about what that power and that purpose is to drive that forward um, because, you know, it's about a greater liberation beyond myself. Well, Sid, I want to thank you for taking the time uh, to talk with me tonight. I mean, I'm going to be watching for your book. I'm going to be watching for everything you do, and I hope that in the future we can come back and talk more because, you know, your best is yet to come. I can, I just, you know, I feel inspired oh. having just talked to you. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. And it was such a pleasure to speak with you. I just, you know, thank you so much for for creating those spaces for these these incredible stories and the, you know, incredible people you interview. I think, you know, that is powerful work, you know, that, sh- that you're creating that space. So thank you. I feel very honored. Um, uh, to be to share that space with you tonight. So thank you. I want to thank my guest, amateur boxer, trainer, ballroom historian, writer, and advocate for racial, social, and gender justice, Sidney Ballou. He's a writer and producer on the HBO Max show, Legendary, and is currently working on a book on the history and evolution of New York City's ballroom scene. 
Sydney is a proud member of a house of extravaganza and advocates for trans-masculine visibility in voguing and boxing and in the film and television industry. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. You can support the podcast by becoming a sponsor of Collections by Michelle Brown on Patreon.com. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.